0: This is an RNZ podcast.
1: At this time last year, we were in the midst of a level four lockdown and most media companies couldn't say what the short term future was for them, let alone if they would still be in business in the medium or long term. The government unveiled a package of measures at the time which it valued at $50 million, and at that time the Broadcasting and Digital Media Minister, Chris Farfoy, called it an adrenaline shot to ease the immediate financial stress among media companies. Now most of these measures, it was noted at that time, would give broadcasters a handy break, such as cutting their contributions to their publicly funded programmes and waiving the fees they pay to state-owned transmission company Cordia. A much smaller sum, about $11 million, was set aside to help publishers of news in ways that weren't quite clear. But months later, it still wasn't clear which media companies had got that money, or if some of it had been spent at all. One who did inquire about that was Stuff political reporter Thomas Coglin. Almost a year to the day since the government announced the COVID measures, he published the results on the Stuff website, and we'll look at those with him in just a moment. But while the $50 million of adrenaline was a handy help to some of our COVID-hit media companies, it was small change compared to the epic scale of the subsidies generated by the deal the government struck recently with the giant tech company Amazon to make a Lord of the Rings TV series here in the years ahead. This was also revealed late last week by Stuff's Thomas Coughlin. And aside from the subsidies possibly adding up to $1 billion over the five years, it showed that Treasury wasn't involved in calculating the special economic benefits, which would bump the rebate up to twenty five percent of Amazon spending. And in a subsequent interview on Morning report, host Corin Dan was audibly aghast when Minister Stuart Nash told him that he hadn't seen any Treasury input at all. Uh, I'm not too sure I haven't seen the Treasury advice to be honest, but one what? thing I will say, one thing I will say, I don't care what the Treasury advice would have been. Well, it turned out that Treasury didn't actually provide any specific advice for this film project, but Treasury has been sceptical of the claims of benefits put forward in the past for such projects and has been concerned about the rising sums spent on screen subsidies. Last Wednesday, the Otago Daily Times said it's time for a wide-ranging discussion about subsidy priorities and the level of them, and New Zealand's attitude to this has also been noticed overseas. The Irish Times media writer Laura Slattery dubbed New Zealand's government Lord of the Incentives and said that the likes of Ireland and Scotland wouldn't or couldn't match New Zealand's commitment to subsidise uncapped spending by movie and TV companies. Again, Stuff's Thomas Coghlan was able to reveal relevant details of the Amazon deal by using the Official Information Act, but again, it was no simple matter getting those details or the details of how the deal was actually done.
0: I was pretty persistent. I, I didn't have to use the resort to the Ombudsman or sort of elevate it to that level, which is your sort of last resort. And I became aware through some financial documents that I've been reading at, at uh, Treasury Lockup, they, they published their half-yearly accounts. They specified in, at the back that Amazon and James Cameron were going to be filming The Lord of the Rings and Avatar at the same time, was going to create a massive um, fiscal risk for, for New Zealand, what they call a significant fiscal risk, which they have to just publicly disclose. And so I, I filed this um, really, really broad OIA, uh, which asked for all briefings, aid memoirs and all other papers, including emails between Amazon and uh, the New Zealand government through MB, who's the lead agency on it. It took them until december twenty one to come back to me and say that they didn't actually like the OIA, and they wanted to rescope to include all emails and communications, which is what I really wanted. In the end, it was close to three hundred pages, I think. You think with the OIA that it's sort of like an algorithm. You know, you have a legislative entitlement to get this information. And so if you put in certain words into an OIA, then it will spit out the same thing. But it's not
1: like Right, that. or they look at it and say, in scope, out of scope, here you go. Here you go. shouldn't Ex- be that hard. Yeah, here are
0: the mm. redactions. But it's not like that. It's actual people, ministerial services. It's actual people doing this. So I thought, I'll, I'll call up, I'll make an introduction, I'll, I'll ingratiate myself with the people who are doing my OIA. And I did. Then over February and March, there was a lot of calling, um... Um, and they'd call up and say it's Amazon is being consulted on what has to be released, which oh. is part of the rules. So they got they were consulted. But Amazon's consultation was taking um, a long time. Um, they are a massive company. I, I think they, they sh- it shouldn't have taken that long. They should have been able to to have a look at that and, and, and consult on it faster. But there was a lot of back and forth. Um, and I think, I mean, again, going back to the fact that all of your OIAs are handled by real people, um, I think it probably did help that I just sort of I think um, politely, um, but, um, but politely but clearly, raised that I was, you know, unhappy with the length of time that it was taking. Um, and uh, and and then um, the, the good side of this actually was that um, at a certain point, it was decided that the memorandum, the final memorandum of understanding, the big thing that they were negotiating, they said, "Well, look, that's not within the scope of your OIA, um, but because you've waited so long, we're going to um, expand it." expand the scope to include that, and we'll give that to you as well. Oh, so, good good outcome. It was a good outcome. So it was sort of like an LIA, CD negotiation story, coming first. <laughs> um, but obviously, um, like any journalist, you think, well, I'm, I'm still going to publish my story. Absolutely. <laughs> so, so
1: we did both them. Yeah, there's the deal and how it was done. So yeah, there's uh, Rich Vane and all of that. But we had um, ACT MP Brooke Van Velden. of course the ACT Party, mm. in principle, have opposed the expansion of, of film subsidies. Um, but... She was asking questions um, in Parliament, written questions, mm-hmm. uh, but would we know about this deal and how it was done if you hadn't put in these OIAs? Would that still be available in the documents, but hidden from our view, effectively?
0: Um, yes, I think so. There have, in the past, um, these memorandum memoranda, I guess, of understanding are... Um, you know they're signed with any film company that spends over a certain amount of money and a certain amount of time in New Zealand. So it's the it's the big ones. Avatar is the, the biggest one that I can think of that, that got a memorandum of understanding, that was published. Um, I think it is proactively re- released, so you'd see it. They would not proactively release, I don't think, um, the documents. Um, if if I had not OIA'd it, I think. Um, Having dealt with a lot of proactive release, actually, um, one of the things that often doesn't get proactively released is communications. And I think in the communications, you can see that, that they were interested. The New Zealand government was terrified that Amazon wanted to take parts of The Lord of the Rings... Offshore, so most of it would be shot in New Zealand, some of it would be shot in other countries, and that's obviously for our tourism. You know, one of the main reasons we're doing it, this is for tourism, and that would have been a pretty serious challenge to our tourism. There were some concerns that if they um, if they do in the subsequent season of this show, which they, they will, they've paid I think two hundred and fifty million US dollars for the rights to do this show. So, and obviously the New Zealand side raised concerns that hey, if we're subsidising four seasons of your show, and then you decide to take it to the UK, which also has a film subsidy regime. It, it adds so much richness to journalism if you if you know the people, their names. Well, um, also, for example, the, the government negotiating for a member of
1: the New Zealand Film Commission to be escorted yeah. down <laughs> the red carpet at the series premiere and being given the opportunity to speak with interested members of the press. Mm, yeah, I'm sure there would be the person from the New Zealand Film Commission they'd certainly want to speak to on the day of the premiere. Um, yeah, so and, and also. But the deal also commits Amazon to partnering with local firms in ways that are unique to this deal, um, talking about investment in sections like uh, costume design and drones, even things like this and, and all, yeah. this, all this innovation. I mean, that, this is where the commercial sensitivity comes in. Uh, and that that could be used as a kind of veil to draw over if they don't really want you to see those parts of the the negotiation
0: yeah it, it could be and I, I imagine there, there was there were very i got to say there were, there were very few redactions which i'm quite i think that's really good um and in the spirit of the uh, the legislation but but yes i mean that that is clearly commercially sensitive um and and you could see that that would be um, blocked from from release if they if they were well, you could see the potential for it to be to be blocked from release, I'm glad it wasn't. And um, when you look at other countries' freedom of information regimes, the UK, in, in, in particular, at the moment, is having a bit of a scandal through uh, regarding local councils um, and their commercial dealings. The local councils over there have had funding cuts in the last ten years, and as a way of plugging the gap, they've been um, engaging in commercial activity to make some money, um, and, and that has all been. Are hidden from view hidden from their freedom of information laws our, our government engages in commercial activity all the time we've just seen this week the transmission gully PBP, which is a commercial entity we've had privatized prison services um, which you know prisons obviously have to be subject to the highest degree of um, of, of public disclosure um and then on, in this regard uh, you're you're we're spending a, Enormous amounts of money. In um, and, and some years, um, one in five dollars allocated in a given budget of new spending goes to the film industry. So it's very, I think, when, you, when you're talking about those sums of money, if, you're, if you are a commercial entity which is calling on vast reserves of, of government money um, or engaging in a pretty sensitive government activity like building a road or, or incarcerating people, you have to sort of think, well, hey, I'm going to be subject to a higher degree of public disclosure here. That has to be part of the rules. So I haven't I haven't actually seen anything um, that has suggested that Amazon has not been forthcoming or or has has tried to obfuscate, um, apart from the the time frame. One one thing I've been really disappointed by from Amazon's perspective is that they haven't fronted on this. I think um, if if you're coming to a country and you're you're claiming a, a massive um, subsidy, you probably have an obligation to that country, so a moral obligation to that country's people, to say um, why. And Amazon hasn't taken up that opportunity. You just know when you're emailing them. But, you are not know, going to get a response. <laughs> That's
1: sad. I knew it. <laughs> well, turning from the eye-watering sums in the Lord of the Rings uh, subsidies to the much more modest uh, sums spent by the government a $50 million package uh, almost a year ago exactly. Uh, the government announced the minister called it an adrenaline shot to help the media out when things were looking very, very uncertain. Um, was it a straightforward exercise getting information via the Official Information Act about where all that money went?
0: This one was a, a bit of a nuisance as well. I mean, every every OIA request has its own little fish hooks. Towards the end of the statutory time frame, um, I was given an email saying that um, that wouldn't, I wouldn't be getting the information because it was about to be released um, publicly. That is a legitimate grounds for refusing an OIA. The, the, I, I sort of thought, well, you could probably have told me that when I filed the OIA rather <laughs> yeah, than waiting for it. I think so. You know, <laughs> and that was frustrating. And then, out of the blue, the actual the day that I was um, the day that I filed the second Amazon story, um, the Ministry of Culture and Heritage they got in touch with an email saying, "Oh, here it is."
1: Yeah. But, but one <laughs> of the problems here was that the biggest chunk of that fifty million dollars, just over twenty million of it, uh, is uh, that slice that went to broadcasters to give them a break on their transmission fees via Cordia, the state-owned trans- transmission company. So officials wouldn't reveal to you which broadcasters had claimed that money, citing commercial sensitivity uh, which I guess is not um, not unexpected but aside from that so there's still 30 million dollars in play in this to make use of in ways that weren't clear was it easy to work out where that money went once they'd given you that information
0: um yeah well it was it was in a spreadsheet which made it very easy to to collate and and I was actually for our readers one thing I, I liked to do is to when I get the OAA is to upload it to our website so that people can see the primary source and kind of you know use it for their own journalism or just to have a bit of a candour, really,
1: just under five million dollars dispensed in government advertising uh, to big media outlets, which which, which was interesting because you know, some companies like means stuff, you know, that would be really handy to be getting a bit over a million dollars yeah. each. Given that both companies, of course, were receiving the wage subsidy too, uh, if they were required at that
0: time. Yeah, you could, I, it was the way that the, the way that the OIA was presented made it very easy to to look at who got what and 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 what area of assistance they received it some assistance to really small publications which I quite was interesting to see
1: Yeah, the more, more than 300 of them all getting just under $13,000 yeah. each, the same sum What was it, the dispenser like that?
0: I, so this was something I, um, the story landed quite late, the, the OIA landed late in the afternoon on a Friday so I didn't actually find this out at the time I filed the story but I, I subsequently got back in touch with the Ministry of Culture and Heritage and it's quite simple got a rough um, estimate of how many outlets they would there would be, they would be they just divided the pool of money by how much how many outlets were going to claim it, and then um, they subsequently found um, other outlets which needed the money, so they raised the allowance and paid that to them as well.
1: But uh, coming down to the, the lower level of that uh, $50 million announcement, there was $1.3 million earmarked for government departments uh, to take out subscriptions, uh, effectively with online news services here um, operating paywalls. Um, and now you're... Work shows that it actually ended up being about $1.5 million. so they spent a bit more on that with a whole range of services. It's interesting, say, for example, uh, National Business Review, um, which is now an online-only operation. Uh, they got uh, $270,000 from these government departments. That's a significant boost for a, something of, of that scale. However, during the COVID outbreak uh, or the, the, the lockdown, where things were really acute for the media, the likes of well, stuff was actually appealing to its... Readers for Mm. support, and they haven't, they don't have a a subscription thing, so nothing for a government department to subscribe to. Um, Some hard feelings at stuff, perhaps, (laughs) that that you were not able to benefit from this, and you wouldn't have been the only one because there are other online outlets out there doing news um, that, that don't operate any kind of paywall.
0: I remember with my colleagues at the time being like, what does this mean, you know, um, we're going to see a few more newspapers in the lobbies of, of ministries and stuff, because we do, you know, you can subscribe to a, a staff newspaper. But obviously not. <laughs> um, and actually, it's the, the subscription thing is, it's a, I think it's a perennial issue in terms of government funding for um, media. It's a it's a concern, I think, for, for any... Um, any organisation taking public funding for um, a media, for, for, for public interest media, um, I think there, there is an obvious argument that it should be um, that it should be publicly available for for free. That's what you know. If you're if you're taking money from people to, to do something that's a public good, then those people shouldn't have to pay again to see it.
1: And finally, Thomas, there you mentioned that both these stories came together, and both on a Friday. I mean. That's a journalist bugbear, isn't it, that uh, stuff being released on a Friday, um, <laughs> yeah. often when it's perhaps, you know, sensitive or has been sought for a long time. Do you think that's um, in any way just a coincidence, it just happened to be the Friday for these things?
0: Yeah, I mean, so the Amazon story was um, I was given a heads up that it was coming so I could clear my diary for it and the the actual um, the, the the big data set for Amazon came. On the Thursday morning, and we put the story up on the Friday, which meant that the big Amazon story, the the long negotiation story, I wrote on the Thursday night and the Friday, which gave um,
1: you the opportunity to talk about the dinners and trips to Whitsunday Island. Yeah, exactly.
0: Because that's why I really, you know, that's that's the it's not the 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 break of the MOU is is exciting, but the the, what you really want is the sort of the people behind it. Um, And but certainly, yeah. I mean, we last year. Last year the government got into a nasty habit of of Friday afternoon um, dumps and actually fortunately um, the discontent of, of many people was expressed and they've stopped so that's good. Um, they, they are much better at telegraphing when they're going to put stuff out and um, and and uh, you know I think always when you're holding people to, to account you should um, give points for good behavior and that is certainly something that was bad and that which has been fixed so I'm grateful for it.
1: So, Thomas, when the Official Information Act and its effectiveness has been reviewed in the past, the government's been urged to do more, release more um, proactively, but... Is that, in your mind, working out or are there fish hooks in this proactive release?
0: I think there are there are aspects of it that are really good. They proactively release cabinet papers and, you know, interested people go through and look at those. So that and, is
1: happening more now than it uh, used to? Absolutely. Okay. There's,
0: there's un- undoubtedly, that's a, that's a very positive side effect. You have a high... Stuff that, that might not be um, released otherwise is being released and people are looking at it and, and then people who are in certain areas, uh, like like people who are interested in tax issues, for example, always look over the tax um, proactive releases, and then they'll pick up the phone and say, have you seen this on the IAD website? I think it's something you'd be interested in. So
1: in the, with the media in mind and this public media policy stuff, Ministry for Culture and Heritage has a section
0: yeah. on its website for proactively releasing. Precisely. Mm-hmm. And an interested person, you know, if I had an that an interested person would probably look at that and say, oh, interesting, you know, and then they'd, they'd draw your attention to it and then you'd probably do a story. Where I think it gets really complicated and where I think, there's a threat is, is um, things can be refused under the OIA if they're about to be proactively released. So that that is a, an issue, but it does mean that, that the information does have to come out at some point. Um, the other issue... Well, there's a pain in the neck when you're a journalist who wants yeah, an exclusive who wants a story. Scoop. Yeah, okay. yeah, it's a real pain. Um, so, yes, I actually hate when I OIA something, saying that it's going to be proactively released. I, I don't like that um, selfishly um the but the big I think the biggest concern is that um around big issues the budget's always proactively released and last year we saw the COVID documents proactively released um and the issue the, the the COVID the issue with with proactively releasing um stuff like that is the government almost imagines an OIA that's been filed and responds to that OIA with the proactive release of papers and I think in the, the case of the COVID-19 documents they were um they were documents relating to decisions that were made around COVID-19, but they didn't include, like, low-level documents, little memos. and. So why would that matter? Because you never know what you're going to find, and it gives a picture of what is being presented to ministers, and it, it helps you understand whether they were given the full advice when they made a decision. And obviously you're looking at it from the perspective of the future and you're looking back and saying, well, did they make the right decision? If they made the wrong decision, were they given advice which would have helped them make the right decision? And in the case, my my big example with the case of the, um, the, the, the papers that were proactively released around COVID-19 is that they did... They painted a pretty good picture of the government which was getting good advice from its, particularly the health ministry ministry and some advice from Treasury, good advice and was making good decisions based on that advice. And it, it was a pretty glowing picture of the government. Um, what we subsequently found using the OIA and, and fighting for the information is Treasury um Treasury was delayed in releasing lia's during the pandemic, which is perfectly understandable. It was a difficult time for everyone. Um, but they slowly they put up lists of briefings that they were giving to the finance minister during the pandemic. Around September and October, they published lists of briefings that they were giving to the minister in February, March, April and May. From those lists of briefings, we said we'd like this document, this document, this document, this document. And the picture that emerged when those documents were eventually given to us in January and February this year is that the government was given advice, very explicit advice, on the economic response to the pandemic, which is, you know, which is a mixed bag. On the plus side, most of us have still got our jobs absolutely successful in that regard. But it's made the housing problem, which was already a problem, um, much, much worse. It's deepened inequality. And, it, you know, New Zealand, New Zealand's economic response is probably the least successful part of the COVID response. And I think the, the inequality story in New Zealand is worse here than it is in many other comparable countries. So, we're, you know, we're, we're leaving the pack on the health response, no doubt about that. But so we're, the stuff that illustrated trading,
1: arguments about that was not in the proactive was not the of the release. not okay. And
0: not just that. I mean, the first document that was the, the biggest smoking gun was, was not a COVID. A document, um, the, subsequent, the subsequent documents that, that did say, so the, the, the first document says, if things get bad in any economic crisis, the Reserve Bank's going to start printing money effectively um, that was, I think, January and then the document in February and March said oh, things are getting really bad, the Reserve Bank, you know, this is the hypothetical thing that we're talking about in January, it's going to happen and and it warned the... And the thing, that, the thing that... The reason why, to go back to your original point, the, the reason why we like the small little papers is that the small little papers show that a minister was was being reminded... And just, to, like, some of the papers are two pages long, but that it shows that the minister is being reminded, hey, we've warned you about that, you know, just remember this. Um, you're, you're a busy person, you read thousands of pages a day, but just remember that, that you have this advice, that you know what to do, that we've told you... We've given you advice on this. And I think... Um, what was yeah but the, the 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 thing that's dangerous about proactive release and the thing that was left out of the that was left out of those proactive releases is the fact that the government was warned um, that things could get quite bad in terms of inequality in house asset prices they were warned not just once but repeatedly and they were warned right on the eve of the reserve bank actually doing the thing that it did to um, which effectively um Lifted property prices, and they were told to do something about it, and they ignored that advice and they did nothing. And that is, you know, that's the economic equivalent of of Jacinda Ardern ignoring um, the Ministry of Health's advice to shut the borders or to go into level four or whatever. That, you know, they really they they, they they did they did reject that advice. And that I think there's a concern with any proactively released stuff that you are um, you are letting people tell their own story mm-hmm. um, rather than rather than going out and finding um, the full the full picture of it.
1: So in principle, good for democracy, good for transparency that they do put these documents up there, however... Keep your you eyes
0: open. <laughs> ...be aware that you're getting
1: perhaps a tidy version that uh, yeah. might just suit either the minister or the ministry or officials.
0: Absolutely, yeah. And, you, you know, you've got to... The boring, the funny little documents, the memos, the aid memoir, the communications, those things tell the, the real picture. And they, they, you get a real sense of the temperature. Are people worried? Are people scared? Are they working fast? Are they pretty chilled out about something? And that's, you know, you you really get the full picture. Um, You have to fight for the full picture. You have to OIA, you have to wait. That was Thomas Coghlan, political reporter for Stuff and a frequent user of the Official
1: Information Act, which lately he's been using to shed light on where public money has gone and might go through our media.